In a seemingly unassuming corner of an otherwise ordinary industrial estate in Bristol, a team of some of the brightest people in car and aviation engineering are putting together the fastest car in the world. Since the inception of the Bloodhound SSE programme, Gareth Jones on Speed has carefully followed the progress of this heroic plan to build a car that will do a thousand miles per hour. And when I was invited for a tour of the Bloodhound Technical Centre to see how they're getting on, I jumped at the chance. To begin the tour, their communications manager Jules Tipper and I climbed up onto a gantry to get a view of the entire facility. How much space have you got here, Jules? Do you know how big this area is? It's about three times the size of our old workshops when we had a virtual car. So we've been down here about two years now. Um, Was it difficult finding a place that met your requirements? What were your requirements? If you're going to build a thousand mile per hour car, what do you need? We needed something that had about five metres of roof height because once you've got the tail fin on the car, it's massive. And we needed good access to the motorway, the roads. We're based in Bristol because you've got a lot of skilled engineers in this area, so a lot of the aerospace with Airbus and Rolls-Royce. So what you've got here is, I have to say, I'm standing right in front of the chassis, which is starting to take shape in a beautiful way now. The jet engine has been installed. The EJ200 engine it is, isn't it? From yeah, America? out of a typhoon. Now that marks a real major milestone for the project. You haven't got elements of a car, you've got something that really is starting to be a car now. How difficult was it to get it to the stage? Did the motor go in alright? The motor did go in alright. It was a little bit nail-biting to make sure all the tolerances and the fit around it, so that's why it's been trialled installed now, before they've put the skin on the upper chassis. But it's taken six years of research. First of all, to find the right shape, then to design the car and make sure all the 3,500 components are all going to fit together perfectly. So yeah, as you say, it's a real milestone in the build of the car. And looking forward to rolling that out. Well, that'll all happen soon, but you've still got some ways to go. The rocket motor's not fitted, a lot of the other... Uh, I was going to say avionics, that's not quite the right term, is it? No, it's got all of the wiring loom, all the hydraulics yet to go in. So it's probably 50% of the way through the build now. How do you organise this place? What do you actually do here? Upstairs, we've got the design office, where we've probably got about 15, 20 engineers <laughs> sitting at CAD stations, drawing, detailed drawing of all of the parts. Then they go off to be manufactured all over the world by leading specialist suppliers, whether it's aerospace, motorsport, some degrees in space. And they all come back here to be assembled. We've got a workshop in the corner over there with lathes and mills. We do carbon fibre fabrication there. In the corner here we do hydraulics. So all of the APU, so the auxiliary power unit, which is pumping the oxidizer into the rocket, all of the hydraulics for that are all sorted in here. How difficult is it to manage a project like this? Because you're getting suppliers from all over Europe, aren't you? All over the world, in fact. Yep, and there's bits and pieces coming from Japan in the air brake door mechanisms. From Japan? Yeah. Why Japan? Who's, Apparently it? that's where the best materials or the best parts came from. Now, as far as completing the assembly of a car, when you roll out of here, will it be an absolute ready-to-go car, or do you do like final fitting and stuff at the test site? I expect it's going to be like all prototype racing cars. There's going to be development ongoing throughout the build and the running and the testing of the car. So we roll out from here next summer, take it down to the runway at Newquay, and we'll be doing low-speed testing up to about 200 miles an hour. Parts of the bodywork will be missing because we're using wheels with tyres on them and you can't fit them into the car with the bodywork on so it'll look two thirds of a car but it'll still do 200 miles an hour 
and still be the most exciting car on the planet. Exactly. It'll be one of the loudest. I'd like to get a little closer, if I may, to the actual car itself and talk to some of the guys whose job it is to build a vehicle that's going to carry a man at a ridiculous speed. Can we do that? Sure, let's take a look. I've been introduced to Mark Elvin, who I believe is ex-Williams, amongst That's other correct. things. That's correct, yep, yep, now lead engineer on the Bloodhound programme. When were you at Williams? I was at Williams from 1999 to 2005. Oh, wow. So how come you're working on Bloodhound SSC? It's the best project in the world. I think you're probably right. <laughs> There's no two ways about it. Technologically, it's the most challenging thing I've ever worked on. Really? Over and oh, above yeah. the demands of Formula massively, 1? Massively, massively, yes. Really? Yes. Nobody's ever done this before. Formula 1, it's a series of iterations of design year on year. Even when there's a regulation change, you still have the basis of a car. This was started with a clean sheet design from day one. It's an absolute prototype. Yes, it's a one-off. Fingers crossed it will be the only one we ever make because it's taken quite a lot out of some of us. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, it's a first off and the only one. All right, let's get close to the car. I won't touch it. No, I'm free. Really? Yeah. I can? I'm going to put my hands on the chassis. Is that... Duralumin or something, That's what is that? 7075 T6 aluminium, aerospace grade aluminium. Aerospace grade aluminium. Was your background in aerospace before you Originally, came to motorsport? That's correct, yep. I was Westland helicopters beforehand. So you got no experience with rocket motors though? Not rockets, no. But gas turbines, yeah. aluminium, aircraft type structures, and carbon fibre, yes. So what are the problems of dropping an EJ200 engine? into a chassis that has got to stay rigid long yes. enough. Well, there's many factors. I mean, you've got thermal expansion to start with. We've obviously got this horizontal split line along the car. Mm-hmm. and So it's split top it's and bottom. It's split top and bottom. It splits here, so yeah. you can lift the engine away from the car. Yeah. It enables us to do any work. It's so tightly packed that to do much to the car, you have to split it horizontally. To so get you in take, to take the engine out. Yeah. You end up with a differential expansion. We originally looked at an aluminium top structure to go with the steel bottom structure. So your coefficient of expansion wasn't as large because yeah. once the bolts are in, if the thing expands, yeah. we were looking at up to 8 millimetres differential expansion. So you so get a banana shaped car. You have the world's biggest biometallic strip. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly And you never get it yeah. apart again. Right, so yeah. we've now got an aluminium and titanium. The ribs here, they're aluminium, 70-75 again. And the skins are 3-hour, 2.5V aerospace-grade titanium. I just want to describe the picture in front of me here. A beautifully engineered aluminium... Is that a box shaft? These are a series of uh, aluminium machine bulkheads. These are. Bulkheads, OK. Uh, so you've got your bulkheads going across the car, yep. two that sandwich the suspension. Yep. Your rear bulkhead is where the rocket drives through, effectively. And then you've got the side panels which tie it all together. Yeah. So that's one part. That was designed that way because we had a partner who had some new machines. They wanted to commission their machines. So that fitted with us brilliantly. That's great. So we got best part of three quarters of a million pounds worth of machining gratis. Because so, they want to demonstrate yeah, their capabilities. Yeah, and that's was, what only a vehicle yeah, like this can right, do, yeah, isn't it? That was it? Nuclear Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre in Sheffield did that. Right. So they came to our rescue with that. So it's finding somewhere that A, wants to do it, and B, is capable of doing it because there's some fairly large machines we need for this stuff. Is the design absolutely and utterly locked down now? You're going to build the car that everyone agrees is the car to we're build, on, or will stuff change? Yeah, it's called Config 14. Thankfully, we're no longer on Config 13. So <laughs> we're on Config 14, and the car that is on the screens upstairs, and some of it's still in our brains, is the car we're building. We're at that point now where we're so committed to this design, we have to go with this design, yeah. run it. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, we're going to the desert in year two. If we find any areas which we can improve on, yeah. we've got just under 12 months to improve on the design of the car. What are the latest changes? What was the last thing to change before the it was signed off? The last noticeable change you'd have seen would have been the fin. 
the fin got substantially larger about 18 months back. I mean, there's been various changes, such as the winglet geometry has changed almost imperceptibly, but there's small changes going on all the time. Even now, the winglet is one of the things which isn't 100% locked down. We're just waiting on the latest round of aero data. Right. Yeah, but so but that's, not, that's not something that will hold us up, because it's yeah. a discrete part of the car. If we have to, we can go to Newquay without the wings fitted. Right. We only need them for desert running. Right. So they can go on the car as we load it onto the plane to take it to South Africa if necessary. Right. That's your high downforce trim, isn't it? High downforce, yes. Well, we're hoping not to require the winglets. We have them. Yeah. If we go to the desert and farm, we do need them. Yeah. When we haven't got them, them, we're going to look pretty stupid because right. we'll all be coming home. If we go to the desert with them and farm, we don't need them, we can simply take them off and blank the holes off. Let's walk down the car. We're stood right next to the jet engine at the back end. There are no access panels in the side, are there? For yes, there are. there are. This curved section at the bottom is sealed in. Yeah. Yeah. And then this area here is a composite panel. The centre of the this, side this, of the yes. chassis, yeah. And it's got this lattice work running down the side. When we remove that composite panel, what you see there is what you'll be able to work through. Right. So it looks like there's a load of space, yeah. but we've still got a load of stuff to go to in there. To fill it. Yeah. Just like an F1 car, exactly. you fill it's every so possible package. corner. Yeah. Yeah. You think, how can you run out of space in a car that's nearly 14 metres long? Uh-huh. Quite quickly. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you've got fuel taking up a lot of space. Yes, You've've we got have. We've got three fuel tanks. We've got the primary fuel tank, which is about 450 litres. That's kerosene? It's jet A. Jet A. Yeah. And then we've got these two secondary tanks. They're called auxiliary tanks. There's one there. And there's one on the other side, and they're a contingency. If we get to the desert, fine, we're using slightly more fuel than we think, and we need slightly more fuel, we've got to get our jail card. If we don't need it, we can, can take them out. them out, yeah. reduce it's the weight, get higher performance. Exactly, it's easier to have them yeah. and yeah, take yeah. them out than to try and make something in the desert. It's like when you're packing, should we take an extra yeah. pair of chairs? Yeah. If we don't need them, we've still got exactly. them. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, in front of the engine here, now, what the huge air intake. This is the point at which it stops looking like an aircraft, in my opinion, and starts to look like a race car, where you've got this massive air intake over the driver. But the length of it, I hadn't realised. It's travelling quite yes. a lot of air. Hang on, what are we looking at? One, two three, four and a bit of my steps from the entry point to the intake of the engine. You're going to get a lot of drag inside there, aren't you? Not drag as much, no. It gives the chance for the air to sort of sort itself out and end up going in the right direction, really. Okay, yeah. Because the intake itself is actually too small. At zero miles an hour, the intake is smaller than the engine needs to get maximum reheat, uh-huh. which isn't the problem in year one, because yeah. we don't need to go maximum reheat from, from the word zero, go, because yeah. we're going for low speed, 800 miles an hour. That's low, low speed. speed. <laughs> but on the just behind the hole in the intake, you see the square panel there? Yeah. That's going to have some flaps for year two. Yeah. We can have flaps in that, which will be passive. So as the engine's generating negative pressure yeah. inside the air intake, they'll get sucked open. Yeah. It's got some extra air able to go in. Yeah. And then when the speeds approach two to 300 miles an hour, the pressure will be enough to push them close, similar to the, the bypass flaps on a, on a Harrier. Oh, I see. Harrier, yes, yes, of course. Because obviously the Harrier can go maximum throttle with no yeah. forward speed, same as us. So you've got so variable intake geometry, is that what you call it? Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, they call them auxiliary intake ducts. I'm reminded of the things that they have in NASCAR. When NASCARs spin round, right, the they have flip-ups, yes. yeah, which create extra drag. It's a similar kind yeah, of thing here. Yeah. We use it to make sure the engine's got enough air to breathe, effectively. Yeah. Air pressure down at Hexking Pan, that's got to be a huge factor in your calculations. It is. I mean, we're going to... What altitude is it's it? It's about 2,000 feet. Some height, then? Yeah, it's quite high. Yeah. But, I mean, obviously, the air is like treacle in comparison to the air that the EJ200 jet is used to. Yes. Running. It's like treacle. Yeah, yeah. So we've had to do things with the software to trick the engine into thinking it's a higher altitude to give us the performance we require from it. R- and such as what? What do you well, do? There's, there's, there's silly things, like it won't give you maximum power unless the wheels are up. 
Ah. And we haven't got any wheels to put up, so we've had to trick it into thinking <laughs> it's got wheels and they're up. It's, so it's silly things like that. You have an ECU for a jet engine? Yeah, yeah. There's, and um, is that the one from the Typhoon, or have you made something bespoke? Well, why redesign something that works perfectly? Yes. As much as we can, regardless of where it's from, yeah. we try not to redesign things. We try and take a whole load of knowns and stack them to solve this massive unknown at the moment. Just inside the chassis here... Oh, wait, it's just back here. That's one of the control units for the engine. Right. So they're not small units. No, no, that's about the size like of half a briefcase, I'd yes, say. Yeah. It's not like the ECU that you'd find on your car that's <laughs> no, about the size of half a shoebox. Yeah. Yeah, and there's lots of boxes. We found a company that sell cardboard boxes about the right size for our rocket controller and signal conditions and things, because we haven't got the actual units at the moment. We use cardboard boxes of the right size so we can go around and position them in. They're placeholders. Exactly, it's like, like a game exactly. of Tetris, yeah. isn't yeah, it? We'll, You're working we'll it place out. all these bits in, because if you don't, someone else will come along and put something and pinch you a bit of space that you were aiming for. The carbon fibre elements of the chassis, who made those? Where were they made? These were made by URT in Bogner. They're a motorsport-based Didn't they company. do the A1GP car, the second they did one? did, from memory, yes. Isn't yes, that funny? They did. In fact, the guy that designed the A1GP car chassis designed this. No. Yeah, same guy. Really? Yeah, he's a chap called Stuart Allen, one of the top composite engineers in the world, really. He's a very, very clever chap. So the legacy of A1GP. Yes, GP. yeah. And this is, in terms of volume, it's about six times the volume of a Formula One car tub. Because it's sort of twice the length, twice the height, and nearly twice as wide. And it weighs just over twice as much. So uh, it's quite an efficient piece of structure. Yes, it is. And we're not having to go for the side impact tests and things like that. So yeah. we're not going to have another car crash into the side uh-huh. of us. So we don't have to meet those safety criteria equally. The thing is, it has been designed to be strong in the event of the type of accident that we will hopefully never see. Yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's strong where it needs to be. We've got this big edge member around the cockpit to stiffen up the aperture and things. But we don't need to do the same sort of tests as the F1 teams. It's not going to go wrong. It's not going to go wrong. But if it were to go wrong, it would roll, wouldn't it? That Possibly. would be. That well, would there's a number of things that can happen. If you look at past Lansby record cars, they can fall over onto their sides. I mean, Craig Breedlove's last yeah. attempt, the back lifted up, it fell onto its side and went round in a big arc. That's probably the best thing that could have happened because had it gone into a pencil roll where the wheels came off and it rolled down the desert like a pencil, yeah. that's an awful lot of energy to try and dissipate. Yeah. I can't even calculate the amount of energy it's, you get of a 1,000 yeah. miles per hour. I, mean, I know what it is in Formula One terms, yes. but this is exponentially greater. It's approximately 135,000 horsepower, wow. equivalent of. So 135,000? Several, several Formula One grids. Dear Lord. <laughs> All strapped together. And we've come around to the front now, to the cockpit, where... Andy Green is going to sit and do an extraordinary job of making this thing A, stay on the ground and B, achieve everything you've set out to do. It's a test programme, isn't it? He's not going to go out there and say, let's see what this baby's got. It doesn't work like that, does it? No, it doesn't. We will have a very defined set of parameters that Andy will drive to. Mm. Andy will be driving to the engineer's instructions. That will involve initially going perhaps 100, 200, 300, 400, and then 450, 500, 550. As we go faster, the increments will get smaller. And if we get to an area where the data that we're gathering from the car starts to diverge from our calculated data, we'll have to investigate why and approach the speeds in even smaller increments until we can satisfy ourselves that it's safe to proceed. When aircraft are designed they're designed with a number of cycles in mind you know yes. take off and landing yes. have you built a number of cycles if you like into this do well, you know how many passes roland our stress engineer is ex airbus right so he has insisted that we design everything to the same factor of safety as an airbus so everything's got a factor of safety of two on it so it's mm. twice as strong as it needs to be in terms of cycles we're probably only ever going to do in the region of 60 runs so we're going to get nowhere near the fatigue life required 
uh, any of these components, they're all easily up there with an Airbus. We are subjecting to some fairly violent forces, hmm. but equally, it's been designed with factory safety equivalent to a commercial airliner, so we have no reason to think that any of the fatigue issues will raise their heads. So it's not a comet in waiting, no? No, definitely <laughs> not a comet, no. No, we haven't got any square windows. <laughs> and if there was a market for second-hand world land speed record cars and you were to buy Bloodhound, it would say one very careful, one very careful owner, owner yeah. you know, barely any mileage compared to what it was expected to do. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I mean, we'll be doing, uh, say, 60 runs of about 12 miles each run. It's just warmed so up, isn't it? Yeah. Mark, a thrill to have the chance to get so close to the actual car rather than a model and to meet the man who's (laughs) making it work. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. I've been brought over to an area of the Bloodhound Technical Centre where I'm going to be given a demo of the rocket motor, well, the principles of the rocket motor, which will be used to shift Bloodhound SSC from, what, about 500 to 1,000 miles per hour? About 350. 350. You'll use the jet engine yeah. to get up to 350 yeah. and then fire up the rocket. Kev, what have we got here? Explain for me. We're using a hybrid rocket so that we've got the control factor of a liquid fuel rocket but without the risk and the complication of having two separate liquid fuels in the car. How does that work? The solid fuel contained within the rocket tube and then we use liquid oxidiser and then we pass the liquid oxidiser which is in this case HTP through a gauze and it decomposes and it comes out as superheated steam about 600 degrees and then ignites the rubber in the rocket tube. So it's like lighting a firework with a Bunsen burner. Is that a reasonable analogy? Or a kettle? Yeah, essentially, yeah. <laughs> So I'm looking at a setup here which is a, an aluminium frame with a perspex or glass tube in the centre. And inside that tube I can see a... What is that? It's a perspex tube. And all you can see there is this area in the centre where the perspex has burned away. So we pass oxygen through the perspex tube and the perspex begins to melt with the flame inside and the perspex becomes the fuel that mixes with the oxygen. Oh, the perspex itself? So the perspex is actually the fuel in this case. Yeah, and on Bloodhound it's... It's HTPB rubber, which is similar to car tyre rubber. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the stuff that Virgin Galactic use, I believe, are the hydrogen peroxide and rubber, is that right? Is that what they're using for the SS2? No, I think they're using something different. They're using nitrous oxide as their oxidizer rather than hydrogen peroxide. Okay. But they're using the same rubber compound, or at least very similar, yeah. Rubber as a fuel is quite a cultural leap, isn't it? <laughs> I should explain, you've got the whole thing coupled up to an oxygen cylinder, and there's a really great spark plug sticking out the top of the assembly here, and a control box of some kind. Explain what you're going to do here for me. This is actually in development at the moment. We wanted to have it so it's a standalone system with a spark plug, and you could just turn up, turn the oxygen on, and we were going to use gas, basically camping gas, to get the flame going uh-huh. and start to melt the perspex and then turn it just to purely oxygen so it then becomes the hybrid rocket similar to what's in the car. At the moment, we're just using the oxygen and we're using a bit of twin flex to ignite rather than the spark plug. So just a bit of wire, just to get any old electrical current in there? It's just an Arduino module yep. hooks up to an ignition unit there and an LCD display. Can we see it go then? Can you fire it up here? Yeah, we're just about to start out. Okay, so do I need to stand back? One second. We can do repeated firing, so it might be worth us just having a practice go. Yeah, go on then. So this is your solid fuel. is effectively a perspex tube, and you can see where it's burned away there. 
That's extraordinary. You wouldn't think of something that solid. I always imagine solid fuel as being like a talcum powder, a very highly compressed talcum powder. But in the case of this hybrid rocket, I'm holding a cylinder of perspex. It's only a cylinder because the centre has been burnt out. It would have been a perspex rod. Pass the HTP through there and the perspex becomes the other element of the fuel. That's right. Indeed. In this example, we're using compressed oxygen. Yeah to supply the oxidizer in the rocket car we're using high test peroxide so concentrated hydrogen peroxide which decomposes into 600 degrees water and oxygen and using the oxygen to feed the fire here we're using compressed can of that so we fire it through we ignite the oxygen and then it causes that to vaporize in the plastic and burn that as a fuel fascinating i'm going to stand back and watch this so if you look at this tube there's a bit of an optical illusion there it looks as though it's spread out and melted probably about 60-40 yeah yeah halfway through the thickness but if you actually look down the centre it's completely parallel you can see it's so why is that why are we getting an optical illusion a lens of some kind yeah exactly so it's the same properties as a lens with a cylinder fascinating so the idea of this demo is we take it into schools to showcase rockets so it's a quick and easy demonstration we can do with school kids they're just setting up now squirting some brake cleaner into one end He's opening the valve. There's some oxygen being fed into the motor now. The Arduino board is connected via a twin flex to the other end. He's opening a valve to allow oxygen in. And it's cooking. It's cooking. I can see a black flame through the perspex. And there was a puff at the back end. As they get the balance of the mix right. Like any motor, you've got to get the mix right, haven't you? We're just setting up for a second go now, trimming the end of the flex, making sure that we've got an electrical current that's going to be fed in the blunt end of the motor. Did you stall it, not give it enough gas? Yeah, I did. It's been a while. There we go. Let's try again. A little bit of cleaning fluid on the end of the wire. Wire goes in the blunt end of the rocket rig, and in goes the gas. So that was that igniting, but not the fuel, is that right? Yeah, I think that time the oxygen pressure was slightly too high uh-huh. and it blew out the flame uh-huh. as yeah, soon yeah. as it ignited. Yeah. That's how you put out flames in oil rigs, you blow them out by so, doing exactly uh, that. you just got to set that at the correct level. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So it's temperamental and it's been a while since we are... Uh, I was going to say it's not exactly rocket science, but it actually is, isn't it? Yeah, everyone says that when they see me larking about this thing at least once. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'll let that one go for free. <laughs> I promise not to say it again, honestly. We'll see. <laughs> right, going for another attempt. Great, the motor started. It blew out the cable out of the end, and now. Oh, that was rocket science. I said it again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I said it again. Very small amount of power here. It's a demonstration. The amount of power you get from the rocket motor in Bloodhound is what? 12 tons of thrust. 12 tons of thrust. Very quickly. And how long does it burn for? About 17 seconds. So in 17 seconds, it goes from 350 to 1,000 miles per hour. Yeah. 
and you can refuel that rocket how quickly? Well, when you do a run down the desert, you've then got an hour to turn the car around and come back in the other direction, to come out of the flying miles, out of the timing gate, the other direction. So they reckon it's about 40, 45 minutes to refuel. And how do you do that? Because it's solid. The rocket fuel itself is a rubber cast inside a tube and you'll pull that out undo some clips slide it out the back of the car and put a new one in the challenge is it's going to be very hot so So it's like changing a sort of an ink sponge whatever they call it that goes in a pen you know yeah Uh, yeah? Yeah, effectively you're just unclipping some circlips and pulling the rocket out and put a new one in so like a fresh battery effectively on a hybrid you're hot swapping a hybrid good luck with that yeah Yeah. good luck what we demonstrated there was a good illustration of how easy it is to control that once it's started we can throttle it we can just turn it off whenever we like that's because it's a hybrid the solid rocket boosters that the shuttle use are fireworks they're on or off there's no throttle and you can't turn them off once they've started so we've got the full control there of the liquid rocket beautiful As you walk around the Bloodhound Technical Centre, there are lots of sports equipment lying around there, trailers for moving stuff around and rigs for assembling and cranes for moving stuff. Two things have drawn my attention. One is a wheel with a tyre on it, and the other one is possibly one of the most beautiful pieces of engineering I've ever seen. And Jules, this is actually one of the wheels from the car. It has four wheels? It does have four wheels. This is the first of the desert wheels. So it's 90 kilos of solid aluminium. It was forged out in Otto Fuchs in Germany, the same people that make Porsche wheels. Then it was taken up to Castle Precision Engineering up in Glasgow. They've machined it down. Rolls-Royce have put it on one of their test rigs and spun it. So exactly the same way they spin test the rotor blades for a turbine. So it's been spun test to 1,100 miles an hour. And if you feel it, you can feel the V-shape on the edge of the wheel. This gives it some lateral grip on the desert. So it sinks into the desert a little bit and gives you some sideways grip. Then as the car goes up to speed, so up to 400 miles an hour, it will come up on plane and just be skinning across the desert floor. So exactly like a hydroplane with a reasonably steep V on the spontons of a pontoon, when it sits in the water, it's cutting in, and it'll be cutting into the surface in Hexkeen Pan, but it skims the surface. At low speed, it's three or four inches across, so it yeah. sits down on the desert floor, and then when it's at full speed, it'll be about an inch across the contact patch of the wheel on the desert. And the front wheels will act more like rudders in the airflow than actually gripping the desert. Wow, canard rudders at the front to give you your control because friction is your enemy. You don't want it to be creating friction with the ground. That's going to stop you from achieving your... That slows you down, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, so at full speed, it behaves more like a boat than it does a car or a plane. And all this has been proved by computer modelling. Yeah, it's been doing computational fluid dynamics. Swansea University have done all of the study over there using supercomputers. So we know mathematically it's good to go, but we won't know if they've got their sums right until we start running the car. I know you've got some bright sparks upstairs in your design office. I'd like to ask them if they believe this is going to work or not. Can we go up? Let's go meet them. We've come upstairs to the Bloodhound design office. This reminds me of being at Lola. It's a very similar (laughs) sort of setup at Lola. Lots of very smart people working on CAD CAM. What are you doing here, Mark? What are we looking at? This is the rear upright for the car. We're just going through detailing. We've been through a couple of iterations of design, going back and forth between myself and Matt, the stress engineer, on optimising the geometry for the rear upright to get the stiffness and the strength correct mm-hmm. in various braking and lateral load. And it's directly comparable to what you do in Formula One. Is yes, this it's exactly the same exactly process. Exactly. Yeah, we use topological optimization. It's the same process. You have a number of iterations of the part 
eventually you'd hone down on the optimum design. I mean, we're limited by time available to us. We could keep going and keep going and keep going and pair every last gram at the component, but we get 90, 95% done and send it. You know, it's not a compromise on strength or safety, it's a compromise on weight. Right, that's the so important thing. You can see on the screen there, that's effectively the geometry for the rear suspension. Yeah. So it's, it's very traditional race car stuff. You've got a bottom wishbone, top wishbone, forward and rear legs, typical race car stuff, adjustable tow link there yeah then we've got a pull rod as opposed to a push rod just purely for packaging yeah we couldn't fit a push rod suspension in so we've got this pull rod geometry at the rear right these are the same decisions made in exactly, the form as exactly well the, aren't they? the suspension is very conventional on this car oh. yeah, there's, there's nothing there's no active silliness going on it's traditional springs over dampers wishbones we've even got the same where but, race cars have now gone to flexured joints rather than spherical we've even got that sort of arrangement but where do you get the dampers from are they built Nitron. to your Nitron. Yep. Nitron. Yeah, they're built to our specification. We've got the dry build units downstairs as a space claim at the moment with the yeah. remote reservoirs. Uh, once we've given them the thumbs up and fit them on the car, they'll build us the proper car units. And the springs are from IBAC. Again, they're just very, very heavy-duty springs. I mean, you can stand on them and they don't really move. Wow. The spring rates are huge. So when you phone up these places and say, look, I know you make springs that are good for this purpose, this purpose, and this purpose... Can you supply a spring that meets these specifications? What sort of reaction do you get from these people? What on earth are you going to do with that? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> to yeah. start with. Yeah. Normally, we've been very lucky. A lot of our partners and people we've been ordering stuff from have been really accommodating. Nine times out of ten, they come up with the goods. And where they don't, we'll have to change the design so they can. And do you get it for mates' rates? Because this is a reasonably well-funded project, but it's not a massively well-funded yeah. oh, project. Our favourite price is obviously free. <laughs> yes. But with that, you end up with quite long lead times mm-hmm. on the parts. And then you can get them cheap, and the lead times come down a bit. And we're at the point now where we've just signed a fairly major sponsor, which has been announced in November. But we do have some spare cash, so we're at the point now where we can actually buy parts for commercial race. We have proper grown-up commercial agreements with people now. So rather than have you know, something comes in, it's not quite a drawing, we can cess it because they've done us a favour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we can go, no, it's not right, chuck it back at them uh, and get the part right. So That guarantees a success of the project, yeah, really, yeah. doesn't it? I mean, the thing we don't have at the moment is time. We're not running until quarter three next year, but we have 20 weeks to finish the design of the car because after we finish the design procurement have to go out and buy the parts get them manufactured we then have to build them onto the car mm-hmm. so in reality we only have 20 weeks wow which is quite an eye opener in terms of the technical aspect what's been the thing that's given you the biggest headaches or has been the most difficult to solve on this project so far the centre of pressure was the most recent big headache because we've always had a fairly small fin on the car mm. and with the jet being so far back because obviously the hot end has to be as far back as possible with the jet being so far back and that's a one ton weight hanging over the back of the car so the centre of gravity has moved rearwards all the time so we've had to put this massive fin on the back you can imagine trying to throw a dart backwards it wants to swap ends that's mm. what would happen if the centre of pressure was in front of the centre of gravity right. the car would do the reverse dart it was just to swap ends right. so our fin has increased in size massively so that was not a difficult decision but it's something you just have to suck up really and the centre of pressure is a movable beast as well surely at lower velocities it moves, yeah. it's going to be further yeah. back on the car move, and move, move forward as you accelerate is that right it does move yes and how much does it move not the length of the car but within the length 
strength of the chassis, is that right? Uh, I'd be guessing, off okay. the top of my head. Fair yeah, that is, it's all in the vehicle technical specs, but yeah. off the top of my head I couldn't tell you. I thought you were sphere. <laughs> no, it's not, aerodynamics is not my bag. Most of our aero is done off-site, We're using the Swansea computers, and Swansea do it. So they kind of work remotely. Ben Evans is the guy to talk to at Swansea. All right. As a Welshman, I'm <laughs> always thrilled to see Swansea written on yeah. the side of the demo bloodhounds <laughs> that you meet at exhibition. So yeah, it's a proper British project. Welsh yes, too, definitely. lovely. We've even got Scottish working for us. <laughs> Whatever next. <laughs> I've come over back to the chassis where there's some vacuuming going on. What are you doing? Um, I'm just cleaning up a little bit of swarf from various components that have been trial fitted. So this isn't quite like being in a clean room where they build satellites, but you have to maintain the chassis as clean as possible at all times, is it right? Well, it's kind of damage limitation. You know, you do particular jobs that generate a little bit of mess, whether it be a fettling composite or drilling holes and generating a little bit of swarf. And the best way to keep on top of it is to clean up as you go kind of thing so that it doesn't migrate into bits of the car that you don't want it to migrate into. It must be a real fear that something will drop down into a section of the chassis that you know it's there, you can't find it, you can't get to it. Yeah, I mean, at this stage of the build, it's not too much of a drama because a lot of what you see here is going to get deconstructed anyway. For instance, next week I'll be taking the jet engine back out of this structure that you see here with a view to putting the ribs back on that fixture that you can see on the floor there yeah. to construct the upper yeah. chassis. So yeah. that will involve putting the rails on the fixture, then the ribs on the rails, then the stringers on the ribs, and then titanium skins on the stringers and ribs, and then it's like 11,500 rivets and a load of sheet glue to, to do the construction. So that will probably be three weeks' work, continuous. I didn't realise that the motor wasn't in permanently you fitted it to make sure it goes in now you take it out and do the rest correct of the stuff. as we stand here now the jet engine is hanging off this gantry so that chain that you can see there going up to the pulley it's taking is the supporting the full weight of the engine right so when the car is together the engine hangs off four rose jointed links so there'll be a pair of links either side at this position here and a pair of links either side of this position here yeah and there's a pin in the top of the engine called the thrust trunnion and that transmits the whole 90 kilonewtons of thrust just from that one pin. Is that a titanium uh, pin? No, it's steel. It's on a spherical joint and it doesn't look very substantial when you see it, but it appears to do the job. So. Has it got a bit of give in it? Is it designed just to absorb? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're anticipating about 9 millimetres of movement on the engine when in operation. That's a combination of a bit of chassis flex and just a bit of movement even in the aircraft the engine moves around quite a lot yeah. which is why it's all held on spherical joints but if you know how much it's going to move around you can predict what that's going to do yeah I think they've modelled it in the computer so they've got a good idea of what it's going to do you know let's hope the software was correct yeah let's hope as if Standing next to the Bloodhound chassis wasn't exciting enough. Jules has taken me into a room and handed me a lovely bit of kit. This is a steering wheel. This is the steering wheel? This is the prototype, so it's an evolution of it, but this has been 3D printed from powdered titanium. Wow! 
It is a beautiful thing. The steering wheel is, of course, the wrong word. I'd call it a steering oblong. Yeah, it's a uh, bit of a butterfly shape. Yeah, it's like a pair of pistol grips joined by a couple of titanium bars, and it's got a set of buttons on the top left-hand side in a road car for controlling your phone or your audio. That one does your air brakes. One on the left. Those two do parachutes. Right. Uh, so you parachute one, parachute back up. Yeah. And these are for the radio communications. So slowing down on the left-hand thumb and on the right-hand side, comms. Comms. And on the back of them, you'll notice there's two triggers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like in a video exactly. game, really. Exactly. Like a, That's so funny. Yeah, so your left-hand trigger is stage one of the rocket. So it lets through a tiny bit of your high-test peroxide to start warming up the catalyst pack. That's effectively like the choke on an old car. So that warms everything up. And then stage two, you pull the right-hand trigger, and that opens the ball valve completely, lets through the rest of the high-test peroxide, and all hell lets loose. So Wing Commander Andy Green is actually driving this car. And by that, I don't mean you get in, you press one button, you steer, and then you stop. He's got an awful lot to do in there. He's got quite a high workload, a sequence of events that he has to follow. How much is he an engineer and how much is he a pilot or, or well, a driver? Andy, Andy, we're very lucky that Andy's the only man who's driven faster than the speed of sound before. So he brings all of the experience from Thrust SSC and indeed driving JCB Diesel Max to the team here. So he gets involved in every step of the engineering process. He's a mathematician. He's got a first-class degree in maths before he became a Royal Air Force fighter pilot. So he brings all of these skills, gets involved with all the engineering and has an understanding of how it goes together and certainly gives his opinion on things that he likes, things that he doesn't think will work. And you don't have a reserve driver? No, the cockpit and indeed the car is all based around Andy and his experiences of flying fast jets. Flying fast jets is one thing. Driving a car at a 1,000 miles per hour on the Earth's surface is a very hazardous exercise. It's a risky exercise. If you were going to do the maths on this, would you have an 80% chance of achieving it, a 90% chance? Can you put a figure on it? Well, I'm being asking the team this question. We all think we're 100% certain that we're going to achieve it. But then going fast is not the primary aim of the project. We picked a number, 1,000 miles an hour, as an aspirational figure. The whole principle is getting kids interested in science and engineering. So we're sat here, we've got the bug, we like cars, we like engineering, we like science. But what we're trying to do is inspire the next generation to get the bug too. So you pick an aspirational figure like a 1,000 miles an hour. And if we get to 999 miles an hour, but we've got a whole generation of kids growing up who've got the bug, then fantastic. Job done. Job done. As the Apollo space programme was for me, that was the launching point for me for my interest in science, engineering and technology. And you're doing it from a UK base. Tell me about the schedule now. We're in October 2014. We're talking about 20 weeks upstairs. What yeah. happens in 20 weeks? In 20 weeks, we need to have all of the parts finished, designed and off for manufacture. So it all comes back to the workshops here in Bristol for assembly. Roll out of here next summer, so August, September. Take it down to the runway at Newquay to do low-speed testing. That goes to plan. Then we bring in an aircraft, fly it straight out to South Africa, where we're running on a dried-out lake bed called the Hackskeen Pan. The aspiration is to get up to 800 miles an hour late summer, early autumn. Now it's a dried-out lake bed. It floods every winter. So we'll bring the car back here. We'll strip the car down to a whole lot of development and go back again in 2016 to try and crack a 1,000. That is about the most exciting thing I could imagine, mm. cars travelling at those sorts of velocities. What I didn't realise is that you're going to go straight from UK testing out to testing it there it's real this is going to happen and it's it's, it's soon isn't it yeah, yeah it's happening next summer 
how can people who listen to Gareth Jones on Speed get involved with this project and make sure it has all the funding it needs, amongst other things? It's £10 to put your name on the tail fin. If you go to the Bloodhound website, you type it in, you pay by PayPal, and your name goes on in about size 6 font, and you get a certificate. So it's a great present for Christmas. We'll be following it on Gareth Jones on Speed very, very closely. Jules, thank you so much for the tour today. On behalf of all the podcast listeners who are backing this project, thank you. Fantastic, Gareth. Thank you. You've been listening to Bloodhound SSE's communications manager, Jules Tipler, engineering lead in mechanical design, Mark Elvin, systems engineer, Kevin Murray, assembly and build technician, David Tufts, and rocket engineer, Ed Fletcher. I'm Gareth Jones. You'll see my name on the fin of the world's fastest car. See ya. To send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed! <laughs>